Let me say a word of prayer and then let's take a look at this together. Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for the words that we find in your word and for the message that you speak. We ask that you'd open our hearts and our minds to you, our lives, uh, to be challenged, to be refreshed, uh, to be encouraged, built up and torn down. Uh, we pray that you would bring to light the darkness that is in each of us and that we would find forgiveness in you. Amen. 1 Samuel 3 is a call narrative, as many of you know. Uh, the first question I ask when I'm reading any text in the Bible is, what am I reading? And the first thing that I discover when I look at 1 Samuel 3 is it's, it's a classic call narrative. It's a story that most of us know uh, fairly well, and it's certainly a story that I think a lot of us identify with. Because in some sense, it is your story, and it is my story. God calls to us. We kind of hear him, but we don't know him yet. He persists. He calls again until we respond. And then he gives us purpose. And rather than calling to us, God calls us. Prophetic narratives, uh, prophetic call narratives, I should say, are exciting. They're exciting for us to read because they tell of the start of something new. They weren't so exciting for the prophets because being called as a prophet meant rocky roads were ahead. And I don't mean the chocolate type with marshmallows and nuts. Rocky roads ahead. Uh, they're usually in the opening chapters of these books, biblical books. Exodus 4, we have uh, Moses, call narrative with the burning bush. Uh, Jeremiah 1, we have a call narrative. Uh, Isaiah 6, we've got that vision and that call narrative for Isaiah. 1 Samuel 3 here. And for those of you who have been studying Jonah with me, a uh, very unusual call narrative there. Uh, but just those opening verses, God calling Jonah to go this way, and he says, no thanks, and he heads off to Tarshish. They set the scene in many ways for what follows call narratives. And I, I encourage you, I imagine a number of you have... Uh, a call narrative of some kind. You probably don't call it that when you're talking about it with people that you know. But we remember our own call narratives. We remember those, those moments where something shifted, where we heard God's voice, where someone put their finger on something and said, I think your life could go in this direction. And we saw something in that. And I just want to encourage you, just as a side note, don't underestimate the importance of those events, of those moments, those verses those words, because some of those words spoken to you can linger for a lifetime and they have ongoing uh, sort of meaning <coughs> and significance. But as I said earlier, a call narrative for a prophet was not a pleasant thing. Uh, nearly all, all those examples that I just gave you, the prophet resists, right? They say, you're calling me to what? <laughs> I'm too young. I can't talk. Uh, I'm busy, whatever it is. And it's not a pleasant experience because the life of a prophet is not a pleasant experience. It is, in many ways, a call to trouble. And if there's a single thread that runs right through the Bible, through the lives of prophets, it is this. Prophets suffer because they bear and share God's passion for the world. So the call of a prophet is to speak words that are unwelcome and difficult, as we see 
in 1 Samuel 3. But they're also words that ring true. In the words of the narrator here, they're words that don't fall to the ground. Again and again, Samuel confronts others with their sin. And we'll see that in the weeks to come as we go through this book this semester. It's his prophetic task. It's not easy, but it's necessary. And in this book of 1 Samuel, he will become a force to be reckoned with. Just to give you a couple glimpses forward. Samuel is a man who will hack a foreign king to pieces with a sword and then confront King Saul because he should have done it himself. This is a man who confronts the entire people of Israel for being small-minded And when he's finished speaking, his words are confirmed by thunder and lightning and rain. Wow. This is a man who comes back from the dead at the end of the book uh, to, to talk to Saul. Saul wants to get a word from Samuel and he goes to the witch of Endor to speak with him. And we read that Samuel comes up out of the ground and says to Saul, why have you disturbed me? (laughs) Classic. This is where Old Testament prophets get their reputation, right? As scary uh, individuals. And you don't want, certainly don't want to get on the wrong side of this guy. But that's who Samuel will become. It's not yet who he is in this narrative that we're looking at. In fact, the first word of this passage, of chapter 3, describes Samuel as a boy, a lad, a youth, a teenager. He's not so scary not yet. I mentioned earlier that uh, this is a call narrative, and call narratives are common for prophets, but you might be thinking, why? What's the point of this call narrative? Well, in one sense, a call narrative just establishes that the prophet is called by Yahweh. They're authentic, they're genuine, and that everything that they say has God's stamp of approval on it. I think... um, Gomez mentioned, Simon Gomesall mentioned last week that kings become kings by primogeniture, which is, you know, the idea that if you're the oldest son and your dad is king, then you become king. And that's how it works. And that was how it worked in the ancient Near East and Israel after David and Saul had tussled things out a bit. That seems to have been the way that Israel went as well. Same sort of applies for priests, but for prophets, it's very different. You can only be a prophet if you are called by God. You can't just walk around saying, I think I'm a prophet. I think I've got some words for you and you and you. So the call narrative really establishes, at least in these literary records, that this is a fed income prophet. They were called by God and that what they're saying is worth hearing. We also get a sense in this passage of how God speaks with his prophets. I mean, these are, these are the sorts of things we often ask in class. It says in the Old Testament all the time, God spoke to so-and-so. How? I want to know a bit more about that. And often the information isn't there. But it is there with prophets. God speaks to them through word and vision. And if you think about those call narratives I've mentioned, Jeremiah, in the opening chapter of Jeremiah, it's actually a, it's a fascinating text where God is teaching him to see in the spirit. You know, he has this vision and God says, tell me what you saw. And Jeremiah tells him, and then he, yeah, that's, that's good. You're, you're getting this. In Isaiah uh, 6, he has that massive vision of the temple and the hem of, of Yahweh's robe just reaching the temple. His mouth is seared with a coal so that he can speak God's words. Moses encounters God in a burning bush and tells God that he is unable to speak. 
and keeps telling God that he's unable to speak until God says, come on, who made your mouth? And then here we have Samuel uh, hearing, uh, but struggling to identify who Yahweh is, even though he's been brought up in the temple. Now, by the way, that's not an indictment on Samuel. That's an indictment on Eli. But the same two themes are right through this passage, hearing and seeing. I don't know if you noticed that. The audible word and visions. And for prophets, these things go hand in hand. Just take a look at the opening verses. It's really clear. I think the the literary artistry of the text is right on the surface here. The word is rare. Visions were not breaking out. Visions were not widespread, it says. The word is, um, the Hebrew word is that the the visions are not breaking out or bursting forth. In verse 2, Eli's eyesight is fading. He can't see. Verse 3, the lamp of God is not yet quenched. And Samuel's in the temple. So there's hope. Do you see the pattern there? The word is rare. There are no visions. Eli's eyesight's fading. He can't see. But the lamp is not yet out. Now, in one sense, that just means it's not yet daylight and the lamp that's burning in the temple hasn't been snuffed out because it's not daylight. But there's more, there's a greater significance to all of these phrases, isn't there? Something else is being hinted at. And the point, as you may have noticed, is that these are dark times. Dark times indeed. And darkness can be so disorienting. I grew up in a village uh, in the north of Benin, which is a small country next to Nigeria. I grew up uh, in a village near the border of Nigeria that had no electricity. Uh, we take electricity for granted, so um, it's, qu- it's quite a startling thing thinking back on it now. But when I was growing up, we couldn't just go and flick the light on at night. Um, this is the late 70s in the north of Benin, which was all jungle at that point. That village now has about 80,000 people. But when it got dark at night, we used these kerosene lamps. They sort of have an hourglass uh, figure or or shape to the glass. And then there's the kerosene in the bottom. They smell strong. um, Sort of a a yellowy, eerie, flickery light that they give off. And I I, I remember vividly as a maybe five, six, seven-year-old looking at the lamp and wondering, I wonder what that flame looks like from above. And I, uh, I wandered over, and I don't know if you guys are aware that the, these lamps, they have a, you don't really think about the heat. You think more about the light of a lamp, but they were very, very, uh, there's a lot of heat in there. And so I, I, just curious as a kid, I thought, I wonder what it looks like. I wonder what that flame looks like if I just look at it from above. And I... Uh, this is one of the stupid things I did as a kid. There are many others. There was the time I, I wanted to see how fast a motor would go, and I stuck the wires into the wall, 240 volts. That was when we got back to Australia. That's a story for another time. But this time, I, I, just, I looked down at the flame, and for a second I thought, oh, it doesn't really look that special. And then all my eyelashes burnt off. All of them. Do you know how useful eyelashes are? They catch all this dust that's going into your eye. Anyway, this isn't the point of the illustration. We can talk about that later, how I got sidetracked and how that wasn't really helpful. Okay, bear that in mind. Um, I remembered how dark it could be at night once these lamps had gone out. And it's a strange thing, but I remember lying in my room. I knew where my, my bed was positioned in the room. And I'd lie there and 
for some reason, I would lose my bearings. I don't know if that happens to kids or if it was just me. But I, after a while, I couldn't tell where I was in the room, even though I knew where my bed was in the room. And I'd lie there in the dark thinking, <laughs> disoriented, don't know where I am. And I'd either shut my eyes and fall asleep or I'd call out. And as soon as some light came down the hallway, oh, I could see the corners of the room, could see the ceiling, and I got my bearings again and I knew where I was. Everything all right, Paul? Uh, yeah, just working out which way's up. <laughs> I don't know what I said. But the darkness can be so disorienting. And as you probably know, darkness is a theme right through Scripture. In wisdom literature, darkness is often a, a cover for doing evil and wrongdoing, for doing the wrong thing without anyone noticing. In creation texts, darkness is a, it's a symbol of chaos, of those life-threatening forces that dehumanize and diminish us. In the New Testament, darkness is sometimes used to refer to human ignorance or our resistance to God. And I don't know what the darkness is for you as you think about that metaphor, what darkness is in, in your life, but I'm sure you would agree that darkness can be so disorienting. And yet in this narrative, set in dark times, God is depicted in a really startling way, bringing light into this darkness. In verse 4, as we notice, the Lord calls to Samuel, and he does so three times, but Samuel doesn't yet know him. As it says in verse 7, Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him, uncovered to him. Now, Eli cottons on after this has happened three times, and he says to the young Samuel, oh, it's God who's speaking to you. And he instructs him how to respond. Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. But then in verse 10, there's one of those verses that almost takes your breath away. It takes me by surprise. It really took me by surprise reading this through um, each time. In verse 10, it says, The Lord came and stood there. As he had done before, the Lord came and stood there. Now, there's a Hebrew word for standing, amad, which occurs a lot in the Old Testament, and it's generally the one used for someone standing somewhere. But it's not the word that's used here. This word, yatsav, has a, it has a stronger inference. It, it means really to set something in place so that it will stay there and it will continue to you know, stay put. This word could be translated to stand your ground, to commit yourself. And I find that even more striking. The Lord came and stood his ground, calling as before, Samuel, Samuel. And then it's followed by another Hebrew idiom, the calling as before. It's like foot with foot is a literal translation, but it really means a repeated activity. Just like what had done before, he did it again. So the Lord comes and stands his ground, calling as before, Samuel, Samuel. God is persistent, isn't he? I'm sure that's your experience, your understanding of God. And look, I'd love to be able to stand up here and tell you, as, as my college community, that I've got most things worked out. <laughs> my life is steady and consistent, but of course it's not. I have highs, I have lows, I have panic points, 
and chill, chill times. Uh, I have ups, I have downs, I experience success and failure. But in all of that, in all of that, the Lord comes and stands his ground, calling as he has done before, Paul, Paul. And it grounds me. You know, last year, um, my wife did this course um, through a local church, sort of deepening your faith, uh, reconnecting with God, however you want to think of it, um, but fanning back into flame your gift and your passion, that first love. And one of the things they said to her when she went and did this course, they said, don't go home and tell your husband or wife that they need to do this because it's a meaningful experience, right? So don't go home and just tell them to do it because it can sometimes lead to a bit of tension and so on. So she came straight home. <laughs> Paul, you've got to do this course. And it's funny because as we talked about it, I, I thought to myself, you know, I teach in a, in a Bible college and I preach regularly um, and I'm, I'm in the Word all the time and yet there's always this danger that it becomes part of my routine and that it, it loses that meaningfulness that it should have. And so I did this course and I met a bunch of guys that I'd never met before and eight weeks later we're all best mates and talking about all kinds of deep details in our lives. Um, and it was a really meaningful experience. But do you know the one thing that God really taught me through that experience? Do you know the profound insight that came to me? God loves me. I know Nigel shared this yesterday with the, um, with the candidates. It is such a significant truth that we lose sight of. And I can say it to you again and again, and it can sound cheesy. God loves you. God loves you. But until we start to really experience that and continue to experience it, it becomes something that, well, it is, it is transformative, isn't it, in every part of our lives. And this is grace. I know this sounds like a lot of grace in this message, that God comes and stands and he keeps calling to us. Sorry, I just lost my, lost my place here. And even when times are dark and visions are not forthcoming, that God calls to us repeatedly. But if you're looking at this text, as I have, you're probably thinking, well, this word is not really grace, is it, Paul? I mean, let's be honest. Let's look at the word of God spoken through the young prophet Samuel, verses 11 to 13. This is what God says to him. See, I'm about to do something in Israel that will make both ears of anyone who hears of it tingle. That's always bad news, by the way. That's a phrase that's used in, in the Old Testament and it's never a good thing. On that day, I'll fulfill against Eli all that I've spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I've told him that I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Now, not banging their thumb with a hammer and saying the wrong word, but blaspheming in the sense of taking God's name, carrying that banner that says, I am one of God's children and not living like it. I mean, these guys are doing all kinds of things, right? The sacrificial system is intended to sustain a covenant relationship with God uh, and Eli's sons are exploiting that system deliberately, taking the choicest bits of meat, not for God, but for themselves. The women who serve at the tent of meeting 
a place to meet with God and discern his will and so on, they're sleeping with those women, treating it like a, almost like them like cult prostitutes. So Eli's sons are completely exploiting this system and they are blaspheming, taking God's name in vain, misrepresenting God and nothing grieves God more, it would seem. Verse 14, Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be expiated by sacrifice or offering forever. And I think in some ways that's picking up on on something that uh, Eli himself says to them. Back in chapter 2, he says, No, my sons, it's not a good report I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If one person sins against another, someone can intercede for the sinner with the Lord. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can make intercession? When the sacrifices that reconcile you to God are the very things that you're exploiting, what's the way forward? It's not exactly a word of grace here. But you see, God calls us, and there's no doubt about that. God has called each of us. He has always called us right through the whole Old Testament and New Testament. This is one of the most, I know I've said it lots of times before, one of the most striking things about the biblical narrative, that God continues to call us sinful human beings, call us to participate in his work, to collaborate with him. It's madness. And yet our work is not simple, it's not easy, it's not comfortable. And in our work, we regularly oscillate between words of grace and words of judgment, just as this passage does. And so you see, right from beginning to end, in one sense, this whole passage is about the decline of Eli. That's clear. But at the same time, and I think this is more the case, it is about the rise of Samuel. In one chapter, the call of Samuel and the fall of, Israel, of Eli, you might say. Samuel must bring down the man who has brought him up. No easy, no easy thing to do. There is darkness in Israel, and yet the lamp has not yet gone out. And the hope that remains is a great hope because it's this. As Samuel grew up, the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. Now that's another Hebrew idiom, words falling to the ground, but it's one that I think we're somewhat familiar with. It's a phrase that occurs often in this Deuteronomy-ish history, the Deuteronomistic history of some, some of you have studied with me in the Old Testament. The book of Joshua has it, the book of Samuel has it, the book of Kings has it, this idea of words not falling to the ground. And it's in accordance with Deuteronomy 18, where a true prophet is defined as someone whose words will take place and prove true. And so our passage, it comes to an end really in chapter 4, verse 1a. There's a little phrase there that really belongs with what we're looking at. And it's just this, the word of Samuel came to all of Israel. Anything strike you about that? The word of Samuel came to all Israel. It's a significant statement because chapter 3 began by saying the word of the Lord is rare. And now at the end of the story, now that Samuel's grown up, he's been called, he's taken up his prophetic office, his priestly office, 
his office as a judge. He has a few hats to wear. We read that Samuel's word reaches all of Israel. The same dynamic appears in the opening verses of Jeremiah that say this, the words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came. The words of Jeremiah, to whom the word of the Lord came. And you know, this is why, I think, the biblical basis, for why the basis of union says this in paragraph 5, the Uniting Church acknowledges that the Church has received the books of the Old and New Testaments as unique prophetic and apostolic testimony in which she hears the words or the word of God. So we hear the word of God in Scripture and by which the Church's faith and obedience are nourished and regulated. You might think this is an odd place to finish a sermon. Bear with me. It's an important distinction that Scripture contains the Word of God and it is there to be exegeted and discovered. And really, it's just, it's just an extension of our conviction, hopefully all of our conviction, as Lee was talking about earlier, that when we read the Bible, we are interpreting it. You can't get around that. There is no simple way to say, I just read it and now I'm just doing it. We read, we interpret we discover. And I think the, the, the basis of union rightly emphasizes that. Let me read you a couple of verses from uh, Walter Brueggemann on Samuel. Brueggemann is one of those Old Testament scholars who really got me into this whole, I was going to say mess, it's not the right word. He says this, the final paragraph of the unit holds together nicely the staggering gift of God's revealed word and the concreteness of Samuel's word. Samuel's word is never equated with the divine decree, but is surely authorized by that decree. The proximity of the word of Samuel to the word of Yahweh is not unlike the double word in Jeremiah, where the word of Yahweh is given in the words of Jeremiah. The Bible characteristically holds together and yet distinguishes the will and decree of Yahweh and the concrete historical form that that will must take. The will and purpose of Yahweh are brought to expression through various persons, among them Samuel and Jeremiah. Israel must take the human announcement of God's will with great seriousness. Yet the careful wording of the matter suggests that the Bible re re resists the equation of divine will and human expression. The human word is as much as Israel receives it is a word that must be taken seriously, but it is not finally the word of Yahweh. It is the word of Samuel that comes to Israel. And in this careful, subtle distinction, Israel struggles with the relentlessly historical mode of its faith. As I said, you may find this a strange place to conclude a sermon, where usually I'm hitting hard on application. How do we live this out? But what I find wonderful about this is how much God has entrusted to us. I am staggered by that on a daily basis, that God has entrusted me to teach others about his word, that God has called us, each of us, gifted us, empowered us and equipped us to be part of his church, his body, 
that reaches out to the world in love and acts as Christ would if he were here in person. In these dark times, the Lord comes and stands his ground, calling as before, Mike, Mark, Malia, Dion, and so on. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful that you are persistent in your call on our lives. We're grateful that you trust us to speak and that you uphold us as we proclaim your gospel. I pray that you will grant us humility as we seek to understand you and to live lives that are faithful to your word. Amen.